Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode number 30. Have the great honor today uh, to bring uh, to you a, a fantastic interview, in my opinion, with one of the nice guys in rock and roll. He's been with the same artist for 38 straight years. That artist, of course, Weird Al Yankovic. We will be joined by the great John Bermuda Schwartz in just a moment. So please stay tuned. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may be the best kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos Drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by Bermuda Schwartz here in just a couple of seconds. Of course, Bermuda has been playing with Weird Al Yankovic, uh, along with many other artists, quite honestly. Uh, but he's been with with Al for 38 straight years. And Bermuda, uh, in our interview, he talks quite a bit about just kind of how the, the, the Weird Al gig has evolved over the years. Certainly a trailblazer in the use of electronics, video, just uh, just the theatrical production. And Bermuda is a uh, just a wonderful historian of the instrument uh, and has been playing Ludwig drums his whole life. Um, it's just really kind of cool to hear some of those stories as well. And Bermuda has uh, always been willing to lend a helping hand to another drummer if he's asked. Uh, so I certainly respect him for that. Uh, so please help me welcome Bermuda Schwartz to the drum shuffle. Hey, good morning, Bermuda. How you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. Thank you very much. Oh, awesome. Hey, thanks for taking the time to come on the Drum Shuffle. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Cool. So, Bermuda, what we typically do on the show, you know, we we, we go back. We're going to let you relive some of your childhood here. Um, I know you started playing at an early age, and, and I know the story uh, of how you got your first kit, but I do want you to share that with our listeners, if you would indulge me, because it's such a cool story. Well, my uh, older brother, uh, he's five years older than I am, uh, we lived in Chicago, and uh, my father was in advertising. And he did something with Ludwig, and and I don't know what it is, and, and all the people that know are gone, unfortunately, but he did some sort of an ad or some kind of a, a campaign or something. This would have been the late 50s. And... Uh, Bill Jr. Uh, bartered out, instead of paying my dad, gave him uh, a snare drum and a stand and sticks and brushes and a, a, a Haskell Har rudiments record and, and a practice pad and a, a Macintosh snare cover, and that was payment for uh, doing this work. And uh, I, I almost immediately, my father also bought a matching bass drum and uh, rack tom uh, to make a three-piece kit. And my brother began taking lessons uh, in Chicago. I believe he took from Roy Knapp, who was a very well-known teacher there. Yeah. Uh, we moved uh, to Phoenix, uh, uh, and at an early age, I started, actually, I started taking accordion lessons, of all things. And uh, my brother switched to guitar, and I inherited the drums. That was in 1965, and began taking drum lessons. And, uh, and that was my first kit. The, the snare came directly from Bill Ludwig himself. What's unique uh, about that snare is, and, and I'm sure, you know, as Ludwig did it from time to time, they, they would cheap out on things. <laughs> uh, he didn't even put lugs on the drum. He had rods that went from top to bottom. I mean, it was almost a free, it was a very rare snare. I mean, it, there, it wasn't a catalog drum at all. He just wanted to save, you know, $2 on lugs, I think. And so he just put basically key rods and, and you know, claw uh, 
you know, claws on single flange hoops. And on the bottom, there was literally just a little hex nut. And that was, that was it. You didn't tighten both heads. I mean, they both tightened together. Uh, and I wish I still had that drum. I mean, it was truly one of a kind. And, uh, and it was really cool. It was blue and silver, uh, Duco. And, uh, and unfortunately, all of the drums are long gone. I did t- terrible things to those drums. I turned the snare into a lamp eventually. <laughs> uh, the bass drum, I did something that, that uh, I don't remember where I picked this up, but it must have been back in the 70s. Uh, I used to work with uh, polyester and, and uh, you know, fiberglass resin and stuff. And uh, I fiberglassed the inside of the bass drum. Uh, I, I must have heard about it somewhere that people were were vibrifying their bass drums that some of the pros did that yeah and so i did that i put uh, put the uh fiberglass mesh on the inside it was like boat fiberglass and put the resin on and it made a nice hard uh interior it was like boat fiberglass and uh it was actually pretty cool I mean, it ruined the drum i mean it was no longer <laughs> a vintage drum but uh, it actually sounded great uh i think i recorded uh, weird al's first album with that drum in fact oh wow but, uh, that's but cool. very very cool anyway i i do remember eventually selling that i must have thought i had I had three drum sets at one point, and I must have thought that was too many. So I sold that drum for $5, oh. or maybe 10 you know, and, and what, what a crime. This was in the early 80s, and uh, yeah, I, I wish I hadn't. I wish I had all that stuff. I wish I had all my old stuff, but I think we all do. Yeah, we, sure. It goes without saying. I mean, we all have, you know, the one that got away or the kit that got away, if you will, but the yeah. snare sounds awesome. It sounds like it was like, the the first ever free floating uh, snare drum. Well, pr- pretty much. I mean, it wasn't. You know, actually, they had single tension uh, snares. You know, like like marching snares. You know, they would just uh, on the junior models. They had one rod that went all the way down. I mean, but it had a little guide in the middle, and and you know that looked like a lug, and or they put lugs on them, and then they ran the rod all the way through it. I mean, this had nothing. I mean, this was just a clean shell, uh, literally, except for the throw off and the butt plate. Wow. were attached but apart from that i mean it was just it was a virgin shell uh and again very a, a very unique drum and and i guarantee you that bill jr was just trying to cheap out but that's what made it so cool you know and the fact that it came from him and my only real regret more than anything is i never found out exactly what it was my dad had worked on uh for the company and uh, you know that would be cool to to have something like that to put that up in a frame somewhere yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, that that's just a, a piece of, of Ludwig history, you know, and for all us drum geeks, I mean, we can't get enough of that stuff. Yeah, you know, Ludwig has gone through enough changes where it's doubtful, you know, that anyone's got that in a file anywhere, you know, as far as what happened back on Damon Avenue in Chicago. I, I'm sure most of that stuff is gone. You know, I, I don't think the people that came in once it went, uh, once Con, uh, once Selmer bought them, uh, in uh, the uh, 84, maybe. Um, I, I think a lot of that stuff probably went away. I don't think there was any sense of nostalgia or history or, or you know, other than some of the big obvious things. You know, I'm sure they kept some catalogs and stuff like that, but paperwork for things that went down in the late 50s, very doubtful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, it, you know, you also mentioned in there that your brother switched over to guitar in 65, uh, and I, you know, I know that you're a huge Beatles fan, so I'm kind of curious that seminal moment in 1964, I'm sure you were in front of the TV watching the Ed Sullivan show when, you know, when the fab four came on TV and, and came to America, was that a function of your brother liking, you know, George or, or John more than Ringo? I mean, how did that work out? Were you a Ringo guy immediately the first time you saw him? Well, probably. Uh, you know, I wasn't really playing drums at the time. Uh, but I, I don't know that, you know, he was, he was, we lived in Phoenix, and he was very much into country music. You know, certainly he would have been aware of the Beatles and all that, but uh, I, I don't know that they would have had an influence on him necessarily. And I certainly Ringo did on me, but not just Ringo. I mean, I, I, my parents had Gene Krupa albums and Latin uh, orchestra albums and stuff. I mean, they, were, they actually had Alan Sherman albums, so I had a little bit of a dose of comedy music. And, uh, you know, so I had several influences. It wasn't just Ringo, but, uh, you know, he was a big one. Hal Blaine, because of all the different artists that he played with in the 60s, you know, recorded with. Uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, he was a big influence at the time. Yeah. You know, I, I learned later on just how many 
songs I loved and, and, you know, parts I emulated that were actually just him. Yeah, we we had um, Lib DeVito on not too long ago, and I was asking him about his influences. And he said, you know, I can remember the day that I found out how Blaine was like seven of my favorite drummers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he's he's 10 of my favorite drummers. Yeah, I mean, the guy was just everywhere during that era. You know, I mean, he, he was, you know, a pioneer for us rock and roll drum guys. You know, um, it was inescapable. Now, I know that once you started playing drums, you got involved with some formal lessons and and marching band and concert band and things like that. Um, Tell us a little bit about that phase of your development as a player. Well, I didn't really get involved in, in like a school band or anything for a few years. I was nine when I started taking lessons. And actually, I don't know if there was a, a... band at my school or, you know, I don't think there was a music class per se, or I certainly wouldn't have been ready for it. Uh, I didn't really get into a school band till I was 12. And uh, I think I might have gone straight into the advanced band at that point because I could read and I could play fairly well. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, I was able, you know, I could take direction and, and uh, you know, they knew I was beyond a beginner's class. So at that point, that was really my first experience playing with other musicians and, and following a conductor and uh, reading music and applying it, you know, as, as I played. Um, but I did take, I took formal lessons right from the start, and, and uh, it was very basic back then, and partly because the, the lesson room was very small. It was little more than a janitor's closet. So we literally just started me on snare and, uh, you know, went through and learned notation and learned, you know, basic rudiments. And then at some point we brought in a cymbal so I could get a sense of working my two hands, and instead of having a bass drum in there, I think he just had me tap my foot because there just there wasn't room for it. Now in the meantime, I had a you know three-piece kit at home, you know, with a hi hat and a cymbal, and, and I was ready to go. So I was doing stuff at home while I was also learning just on the snare. But it was very gradual and and very deliberate development. That's how they taught back then. I mean, they they assumed you needed to know rudiments. They taught traditional grip. Uh, they they uh, you know taught you how to read. And, you know, and then came learning how to play the kit. Right. And, and you know, because rock and roll really was just sort of catching on. And, and uh, you know, teachers were, fortunately, my, my first teacher, a guy named Jim McIntosh, Jimbo, uh, in Phoenix, uh, was was young and hip and, and uh, you know, had a sense that, I, you know, or I told him, you know, I wanted to play rock and roll or something like that, or that I liked the Beatles or, or whatever it was. So he knew to get me into sort of a drum kit configuration. Uh, and I, I moved on to another teacher shortly after that and uh, concentrated more on the kit. Uh, we moved to Los Angeles in the end of 1968, and uh, I, was, uh, I took lessons, uh, you know, started up with, uh, at, a, at a music store not far away, and I had a couple of different teachers there, a guy named Bob Goldman, another guy named Bill Annis. You know, I have no idea, unfortunately, what happened to these people. I'd love to, to catch up with them and thank them. They, they probably weren't too much older than me, you know, maybe 15 years. I mean, certainly some of them are around. And uh, and that also coincided with my getting into my first uh, school band. And, uh, you know, I learned, uh, it was probably my first experience with timpani, uh, my first experience picking up a pair of cymbals and clashing them, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, and, and, and that was junior high. And in high school, uh, I went straight into band. I was in the theater. Actually, they had a marching band, but I was also in the theater arts orchestra. And so I did some shows and, and had a sense of doing cues and, you know, following people and, and uh, you know, dynamics and, uh, you know, d- d- tempo changes as, as were necessary. And we did, uh, you know, at the time, and again, this was early 70s, we did The Music Man and Hello, Dolly, and, uh, uh, oh, boy, uh, My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, you know, so, so really very classic, you know, but fun stuff, you know, very fun stuff. And shortly thereafter, uh, actually coincided with that, I was in a proper marching band and, uh, you know, we got to hone up on my rudiments. Uh, one of the guys in there was the first guy to teach me how to do doubles where you practice them by accenting the second stroke. Oh, and that wow, made yeah. nice and smooth. That was the first time I'd heard that. And uh, that made a big difference. And, that's, and once you've got that little trick, you know, no matter how long it's been since you've done a roll, if you just take a few moments and, and get into the accent thing and, you know, and, and reawaken your hands, you just, you're right back into it like you never left. Like I can get back into a perfect role within, 
15, 20 seconds. You know, once I just sort of get that little second accent going, and it's like, oh, yeah, this is how my hands work. And, and then I'm good after that. So that was a great learning experience. We did a little bit of traveling. Uh, it was a nationally known marching band, actually, in, in the junior band division. It wasn't quite a corps, but they had corps sensibilities and, uh, you know, were very big on, on rudiments. They made their own tritoms uh, before they had quads and quints and uh, tim toms they called them and they were big drums they were, nobody was using little small drums uh they were you know like like 16 18 20 inch drums you know on this big harness and uh, boy those really i played those for a while those really pulled you forward you had to lean back when you played those and uh graduated up to snare we had 12 by 15 you know stainless steel ludwig snares and they weren't tuned up real high you know that the high pitch stuff came a little bit later this was 71 72 so they still sounded like traditional snare drums, but I had a real good the drummer in there was really good with rudiments, and, and that's the guy that taught me that second stroke uh, accent thing and, and made a big difference. Had a lot of fun with them, marched with them for about a year and a half, and made some good friends in there as well, and reconnected with a few. The Internet's been great for reconnecting with people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I know that you you do a lot of web design uh, in your off time uh, from from Al. So I, I'm sure you're probably better at finding people than I am even. So um, it's cool to reconnect with old friends like that. Now, I, I want to kind of key in on something that you talked about there was was doing the, the theater arts band. Um, it, you know, obviously, anybody that's gone to see one of Al shows knows that it's that it is kind of a theatrical production. Um, so it sounds to me like everything leading up to you and Al, you know, sort of getting together and, and playing together, really your training led up to the kind of show that you guys do. Is that a fair assumption? Well, uh, kind of. I mean, I, I wouldn't have known it at the time, of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, everything I've done has really led up to my ability to keep up with Al. And, uh, you know, there's the show aspect. Uh, you know, one thing I didn't do and, and uh, you know, I, I sort of regret, I didn't really have, I mean, despite playing accordion, I didn't really follow, with any, uh, follow through with any kind of melodic musical training. So I, you know, I can find a C scale on, on a piano until I hit enough keys and they're all white, I know M and C. Uh, you know, that, <laughs> that much I can figure out. And I know what, you know, what, a third and a fifth. And I know some basic, you know, music things. But I, I really, I was, I was never apply, able to apply that to singing. And almost right off the bat, he had asked me to sing, you know, and he, he knows I can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it's more important to have a second voice, no matter how bad it is, no matter how, and I don't have a bad voice, I just can't hit notes. I just don't have a sense of, of melodic things. I mean, I could sort of double, you know, I can fall in and double with someone because I can match it up. But if you ask me to do a harmony, it's, uh, it's very foreign to me. And still... Uh, you know, 38 years later with him, uh, it's still, it's a very difficult thing for me. So that's, that's something I wish I had done early on or wish I had keyed in more on was more a melodic thing or of a chromatic thing. And there was always a piano in the house. I mean, I still have a piano in the house and I certainly have that reference there. I could certainly sit down and plink away at keys and, and find notes and find the relationship between notes, but I just, I haven't really done it. And, and I really wish I'd done that at an earlier age. I would be uh, a little farther along, I think, and uh, you know, I could I could sing with some of the other groups I play in. You know, there's been one or two occasions where I've been replaced by a drummer because he could sing. Yeah, and, and that's fine. You know, and that's that's okay. I mean, I don't I don't claim to be a singer and you know worry about someone singing better than me. I mean, they all sing better than me. So that's that's one thing I sort of wish I had done. But as far as everything else, as far as being able to, I mean. Uh, Early on, the very first recording session I did back in 1970, I played to a click, uh, probably because the guy thought I couldn't keep time, and I probably couldn't. <laughs> so that was my first experience with uh, with working with uh, you know a, a, a track essentially, you know, working against someone else that was keeping time for me. Right. And uh, and that certainly has has uh, you know become a crucial part of what we do. One, almost every recording we do is is to a click. And the show that we do, with the exception of what we did this year in 2018, we did a completely free-form, almost all-originals show. But our, our regular show, uh, we've got video and costumes, and there's uh, a server that serves up tracks for us to follow and flies out some vocals and some percussion parts, things we just don't have enough people to do. And, and uh, so that's been invaluable 
in terms of, you know, and I've been doing that since 85 maybe, as, as working with, you know, back then it was a machine, and eventually, uh, you know, wound up being, you know, we'll go into a computer. So playing with that very first metronome, you know, uh, was the beginning of, you know, what would be my forte, which is being able to work with a click. I don't think we've ever had an issue uh, at a show because I lost the click. You know, I'm able to follow it very, very, very well, and I don't feel restricted by it. I'm just playing along. You know, if it's, I, I typically like to to program a percussion part so it sounds like there's another player, so it's easier to actually sort of play along with another drummer or percussionist than it is just you know tick tock tick tock tick tock. Right. Uh, I mean that's okay, but it's not uh, it's not very motivating. You know, and it's easy to lose that because you're just constantly worrying about: Am I hearing the click? Am I not hearing it? Oh, I'm not hearing it. Great, I must be right on it. Oh, I better not get off of it. And and that becomes very unnerving. Where if you're playing along with, um, you know, a percussion loop, you know, no matter how on time it is, it sounds like it's some great player just playing real solid, and it's a real good feel. And and those are the kind of clicks I play with. So, you know, very early on, I, I learned that. Uh, you know, it's okay to work with a click. You know, you're not losing any feel, and uh, some songs just demand it. Some songs, if you're not on a click, uh, it doesn't work. So, you know, that was one of the things uh, you know that I learned with Al. I learned how to wear wigs and snug <laughs> costumes and still be able to play. You know, that was <laughs> something. Uh, you know, we did almost right off the bat. Yeah, it was being being goofy. I mean, it was just you know, it's turned into a very legitimate production, but it was always just sort of goofy and fun and, and, you know, all about the comedy and, you know, kind of outrageous and, and, you know, it just, it was interesting. And it all led up to a a very polished production of the same to where it's very accessible to most people. You don't have to be a fan of comedy music, let's say, to enjoy the production that we do. I mean, it it is a production. I mean, that's the perfect word for it. I mean, if you've ever caught one of your all shows it's an experience and and it's very immersive and you know you hit a couple of things in there that 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 i certainly want to explore you know you said as early as maybe 85 you guys were were augmenting the band with things and that was really cutting edge at that time i mean there were very few groups that were that were doing that stuff so i i guess do you feel like a trailblazer in that area well there were certainly i mean we were following some groups i mean we we uh, weren't the first to bring a machine on stage i mean i was a couple of years behind the technology but but most groups weren't doing that at the time and uh, most drummers i know who have been in the business uh, you know for 30 40 years uh, did not get into electronics at, at that stage uh, you know, they, they waited. I mean, my thing was, and, and I wasn't paranoid, but, you know, I remember when the Lindrum came out, I think 1980, maybe 81, uh, you know, drummers, are, the, the big fear was, oh, the machines are going to put drummers out of business. And, you know, which one, never happened. You know, two machines at the time, they were really being exploited. So, you know, producers were programming parts that were just, that would have been impossible for drummers to play anyway. I mean, it wasn't a competition, nor could machines do a lot of things that drummers did. So there, nobody was being put out of business. But my first thought was, is, uh, well, if people are using machines, I'm going to go get a machine. Right. So it took me a couple of years to get on, on that uh, bandwagon. But I think uh, early 1985, I got my first machine. It was a Yamaha RX-11. And it was, it was interesting. It, was, it had a very stiff sound. It wasn't smooth and solid. It had, it had a feel but not a good feel, unfortunately. <laughs> it was $795 back then. Wow. Which was, and that's, and, you know, back then, you know, the electronics were rolling, Yamaha, whoever it was, Akai, whatever, whatever the price was, that's what you paid. There was no negotiation, nobody discounted, you know, it was, uh, you know, you either knew somebody or you just paid the price. It was $795. And it made, I think, 16 sounds. And it was pretty limited. It took me like two hours just to learn how to program a bar of of rhythm. <laughs> I mean, it was. Now I used that machine for more than a few years, but also took it on the road. I bought a companion machine, which was the percussion version of that, which I think might have been the RX15, and that had timbales and claves and and congas and stuff. And uh, they they paired up. I mean, via MIDI, you just ran one to the other. If you started one, the other went up and played whatever that song was, and they played together. So we did a few songs back then that uh, in 85 and in 87 uh, 
you know, we were we were running uh, well, we were running films back in 1983, so we had a multimedia show even back then. But by '87, I, I think we were getting more into uh, the multimedia. By '92, we were definitely into it. I was having to wear headphones for certain songs because we'd have a click that I'd have to follow. Uh, eventually, it became strictly headphones and then in ears, and most of the show went onto a server. I used to trigger, and my electronic setups uh, uh, got a little more sophisticated over the years. I had an Akai S900, which was a very popular studio sampler, but it didn't have a lot of RAM. I mean, it had like 328K of RAM, which, you know, nowadays sounds like like pitiful. You know, like you, you could barely put a, a snare drum on there, you know, that has any kind of decay. You know, you couldn't put a tom on there with any decay. It, it would take up the whole memory just to have one tom sample. Everything was on the, the small, the hard floppy disks. And you could only load in, you know, so many sounds. So throughout a show, I would have, you know, we used to do a medley. We used to do about a 15-minute medley, and it had a lot of sound changes in it. And I literally had to load in one disk, take it out, put in the other disk so that it's ready to load. So in between songs, I could just push a couple of buttons and it would go. And then I had three more disks that I had to load throughout the rest of that medley. It was just... It was impossible, but it worked, and I used to trigger that with an old Roland Octopad. It was an Octopad, too. And pads in those days were, were uh, pretty elementary. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and that seemed, you know, that was probably very sophisticated, but it, it still had some issues. Like, the pad used to, one, there was a lot of false triggering, because it was strictly a vibration thing. And, and the, uh, there was really bad crosstalk. If the stand, as you were playing it, if you were on a riser and your stands moved and it and the stand that the octopad was on moved over and, say, touched my hi-hat stand, every time I stepped on the hi-hat stand, the vibration went up the octopad stand and triggered a sound of some sort that I didn't want. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I then graduated to a cat pad, which had a very different playing surface and wasn't susceptible to vibrations, and, and that was great. I used that for many, many years. Uh, I... Uh, upgraded my Akai, the S900, and guys in the studio would have like 10 of these lined up because there wasn't enough sample power in each one. There wasn't enough RAM, but so if they wanted to play an entire song of samples, they had to have a whole bunch of machines. So they'd have like eight or 10 of these, like in a rack. And these things were like $3,000. I mean, back then it was incredible. Anyway, I eventually, I went to a Kurzweil K2000, which was like a sampling keyboard, but without the keyboard, it was a rack sampler. And that was very sophisticated and uh, did a lot of things, did a lot more things than I needed. That's one problem with electronics for drummers. There's not a, not a lot of them, not a lot of programs. They're really aimed at drummers uh, because drummers have different needs from hardware and software than a keyboard player does. Let's right. say. So for me to get that K2000, yeah, technologically it was what I needed, but it did way, way, way more. I had to learn a whole lot about that machine to basically just put in you know, very simple stuff, you know, but it, of course it would read MIDI files. I mean, it was a very valuable machine, but it was a, a very heavy learning curve. And I, I used maybe 5% of what that machine was capable of uh, simply because it wasn't designed for drummers. And I talked to a few people who were trying to design machines for drummers. And, you know, I, I wanted to consult with them and say, this is, you know, I mean, you know, you're a drummer, you know, but this is really, you know, guys on the road or in the studio, this is what they needed to do. They don't need all this other extraneous stuff. And I later went to uh, a Roland pad, which was an all-in-one unit, which saved me from having to have a, a big cat pad and this big sampler. Just put this thing on a stand, it was ready to go. And it's a pretty, it's a fairly down-and-dirty machine. It's the SPD-SX, and it's it's a little bit of a learning curve. I mean, I, every time I program stuff for a tour, I have to refer back to the instructions because there's a whole series of interesting menu paths you can go down and, and you go down one or two or three clicks before you realize you've gone down the wrong menu. Uh, so it, it, there's a little bit of a learning curve with that. It's, it's a pretty capable machine. Again, it's over-designed for drummers. Uh, it does a lot of things drummers just don't need. And, and uh, Elisa's has been working, and, and I think they're going to nail it this year uh, on, on an even simpler pad, and I've sort of helped in developing that. And you basically, you put samples in, you tell it what pad you want it, and you want dynamics or not, and you hit the pad and the sound comes out. There's not all this extra stuff. It doesn't sample. Drummers don't need to stick a microphone in the device to sample anymore. 
uh, you know, it doesn't, probably, I think it's going to do loops, but it doesn't do a lot of the stuff that the Roland does that, again, I use about 5% of what that Roland does, and I still had to pay $795 for that. <laughs> and change discs mid-song. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's 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 ready to go. It's it's a very capable unit. But it's interesting that seven ninety five figure keeps uh, is a recurring figure, and I guarantee you this thing is like a hundred times more capable as a as an electronic device than that old Yamaha was. Well, I mean, I think that's just you know the razor's edge of technology. I mean, you know. If you think back, you probably paid a thousand dollars for your first VHS VCR. You know, I mean, it's oh, just yeah. oh, oh, sure. When you're on the cutting edge of things, you pay for you know the infant stage of whatever that technology is. And as more and more people adopt and improve, the price goes down. And it's just um, you know. But to your point, doing this show, you know, I'm set up to. To have pretty much a full recording studio here in my house and i'm using 10 percent of the capability of of the system you know just to do a podcast mm, yeah well and i guess it's that way it's like uh, computer programs you know nobody really uses all of photoshop you know i don't think anybody knows all of photoshop you know or even word or things like that i mean really nobody uses all of it you know right. i guess i guess people exploit different parts of it and probably all of it gets used by but not by one user and that's what i found early on with electronics and no matter even no matter almost how simple a machine was like the elisa's pads are very very simple it still does things that i don't use you know when i bring a pad on tour i mean i just want i want to hit the pad and i want to have a sound come out i don't need effects i don't need loops i've already made the sample at the right pitch i don't need to change the pitch um you know i'm, I'm not I'm not trying to sequence it. I mean, it's just I'm hitting something and I'm getting a hand clap or a tambourine or a maraca or so, you know, it's it's a lot of stuff that just one hit kind of things. They don't need to be stereo. They don't need to pan back and forth. You know, it's it's very simple stuff. And I would love for you know an electronic pad to come out and do that because I think that's what drummers need. And if they need more than that, then they're looking at a a laptop solution with a, you know a, a proper program, whether it's Ableton Live or if they're going to try and trigger logic pro or one of these other you know like a high-end kind of a thing you know that there's there's a real middle ground that drummers don't really need or use and everyone's trying to fill that gap and charge a million bucks for it and uh, a million well at least 795 <laughs> and, and i i don't resent it because it's what i need and what i do and it's you know i, I get the equipment but it's you know i get it and i, I find that i paid for a lot of stuff i don't need right. so i guess i guess in the end it's like you know i, I would have rather spent Three hundred fifty dollars, and and had just been able to put a card with samples, assign it to pads, and have it go. I don't need it to do this or this or this or this, or that, or that or that. And uh, it's great that machines do that, but drummers aren't using them. Yeah. So, yeah. But it's it's interesting. My my job with Al has become a little simpler. The the more sophisticated that our video audio playback became, and we went literally from sixteen millimeter film, which we were still using in 1992, believe it or not, to U-Matic, uh, you know, which is three-quarter cartridge tape, which is an old format, but that's like a professional format, to Betacam, to uh, DVD that was programmed, that, that was authored to have 5.1 output so we could have a stereo feed to the house. Hal could have a feed to, you know, for his monitor, and I could have a feed for my monitor, and then there was another one just in case. And then we went to a couple of uh, audio video servers that unfortunately didn't really handle what we were doing. We used to run three screens of high-def uh, video and audio, and these units just weren't, they couldn't handle it. We were always crashing. And eventually that, and so we relied on me and, and uh, my K2000 and eventually K2600 to play certain tracks and stuff like that where we didn't need video to go with it. We just relied on the stuff coming out of my sampler. Well, eventually we got into uh, a pair of Mac Pros, and uh, those have handled the audio and the video very, very nicely. And my electronics needs have, have become literally just a tambourine hit here, or, uh, hand clap there, something like that, timpani, you know, just different kinds of things. And uh, but like one hit kind of stuff, not major, major stuff. You know, if I've got eight megs of sound, that's probably a lot in yeah. there. You know, where I used to have, you know, 300 megs of, of audio in there. Uh, so, and that was what allowed me to go down from a separate pad and a separate sampler 
to just this all-in-one unit, to this Roland unit. And I've been using that actually for about seven years, and it's uh, it's fine. I mean, I look forward to the next generation of stuff that's a little more user-friendly. And all that said, and and truly, your audition for Al occurred on an accordion case. Is that right? I mean, yeah. I, I think I've heard this story before, but I would love for you to tell it for our listeners. Well, it wasn't. It, it was. Uh, I didn't know it was an audition. It <laughs> didn't start out that way. Uh, we were uh, both on the Dr. Demento show. He used to do a live show here in L.A., and uh, both Al and I were, were big fans. And most, you know, high school and junior high kids were big fans. Um, boys, not very few females in the audience at the time. Uh, it was like Monty Python and the Three Stooges and stuff like that. Not a big female attraction. So so a lot of the guys were big fans of Dr. Demento's show. And uh, Al had become, uh, you know, submitted stuff, uh, his, his uh, accordion and, and, you know, his parodies and stuff that he recorded in his bedroom uh, to Dr. Demento, I think, starting in 1976 and gradually earned a spot on the show and, and uh, you know, had become well-known and, and uh, you know, used to go on the show and he would answer phones and he would sometimes read uh, PSAs, you know, uh, on the show, public service announcements. And uh, one night I was down at the show and I was down there because I was being interviewed because I had also sent stuff into Dr. Demento, in fact, predating Al, and uh, not, not parodies and not originals, but sent in some stuff that got played on the, on the air. And that was kind of rare at that time in 73, 74, 75. Nobody was getting homemade music played on the show. Uh, there was a lot of old jazz and old novelty stuff and, and things like that, obscure records. And, uh, but that night, and by that time also, uh, there were a lot of home artists who were having their stuff played on there. And the night I was down for my interview, Al was there that night and was debuting a song that he had just written that weekend, Another One Rides the Bus, which is a parody of Another One Bites the Dust by Queen. And he asked if I'd play on his accordion case. And I thought, that, you know, sure, I mean, this is wacky wacky show and whatever I've, I've probably done worse <laughs> and uh and i did and uh you know now fortunately and it went out live over the air and fortunately dr demento rolled tape on that you know it wasn't just a cassette sound check which he did of every show but he actually had a proper you know quarter inch recorder in there and ran the tape of that performance and that actually became the single that was released soon after uh there's there's a lot of other business that went on in the meantime but but that became a single and ended up on the first album as well. Well, the the uh, after we had had done the performance, I told Al, I said, oh, "You should have a band. You know, I'll be your drummer." He says, "Oh, okay, sure." <laughs> and that was it. Anyway, he uh, he went back to school. He was going to school in uh, uh, San Luis Obispo out here in California. He was about to wrap up, you know, shortly thereafter. This was September fourteenth, nineteen eighty, by the way, uh, that I, I met him and did that first recording. So he was going to be home, I think, in January. He was going to wrap up school. And uh, he called me a few weeks after we did this thing. And he says, uh, you remember the, the uh, another one rides the bus? He says, well, it's, it's getting played all over the country. I said, well, how, how is that? And he says, well, it's, it's uh, you know, of course, the show was syndicated at that point and went out to, like, almost 200 stations across the U.S. And the show usually aired on Sunday night. Uh, and the morning zoo crew guys, the wacky DJs on Monday morning or whatever, at, at the stations that ran the show would often listen to the show that had aired the night before so they could pull off some funny stuff and, and play it on their morning drive time. Well, one of the things they pulled out of the show to play was another one rides the bus. Of course, the working so stiffs going to, going to their job on Monday morning, of course. Yep. So yeah. we're getting played in drive time in major markets, and that's huge. That's yeah. like golden time. So that... That attracted a huge amount of attention, and it was at that point that Al says, you know, I'm going to be back in January. I want to record a few more things. We're going to, we'll do an EP and, and uh, you know, put this out and see if, you know, who, who bites. So we did all of that stuff, and, and uh, anyway, it, it just sort of, it evolved into a record contract that, that lasted from uh, the end of 1981 to, I'm sorry, the end of 1982 until... No, yeah, end of 82 through literally July of 2014. So that was like a 32-year, 14-album thing. That's a heck of a record deal by today's standards. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and now we are without label, which is fine, because they're not selling product. Right. 
so and that's not where most groups' money comes from. Right. Honestly, I mean it's it's from uh, touring and, and other live performances. You know, unless you're Taylor Swift, unless you're Madonna, unless you're Bruno Mars. I mean, there's a handful of elite artists that one still sell records, and two uh, can go out and, and uh, you know pack an eighteen thousand seat arena at one hundred and fifty dollars a ticket or more. Yeah. Uh, so they're, but they have a you know a lot of expense as well. I mean, they're you know they're traveling with ten buses. They got fifteen semis. They got a bunch of people. They got a fifty-person crew. Uh, you know, it's, they got dancers. I mean, it's a big, it's a big production. So they're, you know, to say, well, they got eighteen thousand people and they're making one hundred and fifty bucks a head. That's you know, however much you know, they're making a quarter, three quarters of a million dollars at every show. Well, not not quite. <laughs> yeah, because but, uh, you're spending a half a million to get to the next city, uh, exactly. you know, for that week. Yeah, so it's it's uh, you know still. I think the performance is where they're making their money. Uh, again, for us, for Al, to have remained on the label, uh, it wouldn't really have made any sense. Um, it just, it's, uh, they're just not selling product. And he can certainly promote himself. Uh, you know, he's, he's great at social media. And uh, he's got like 6 million followers on Twitter, uh, Instagram, he's, you know, Facebook, you know, the website. But he really, he really can promote his stuff. Uh, if, if he's got something new, he can put out a message on YouTube, and a million fans are already onto it. Uh, tours have done very, very well. In fact, uh, they, they just keep getting better and better. They've never been better. Uh, it's mostly sellout tours, and that's without the benefit of, of a new album. In the case of this year's tour, yeah, uh, our, our last album came out in 2014, and it was a number one album on the Billboard 200 chart, which is like the real chart with Ed Sheeran and Justin Timberlake and the other Justin and Beyonce. That's like the real chart, not just comedy. And, uh, and that's, that's a pretty big deal. I mean, I think that's the first album ever comedy album ever to debut at number one. Well, I, and I, you know, I think at this point, you you know, I grew up with Al's music, you know, I mean, and it, it, I think to me anyway, Al is like this, you know, he's a guy that should win the Mark Twain Award for comedy. But, you know, he's he's a national treasure, quite honestly. And, you know, I, I can remember there was, um, you know, uh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but um, you guys did Amish Paradise, which was, you know, the parody of, of Coolio's, you know, Gangster Paradise. And he got really mad about it. And, you know, I thought to myself, you know, you've made it as an artist. If Weird Al is doing your stuff, if he's doing a parody of your song, you're going to sell even more records, you know. And I, it, I think it just goes without saying that Al's ability to do those things, um, there's just nobody else out there that can do that. You know, I, that's a long way for me to, to get to, you know, ultimately my question is you play every genre of music with Al. You play hip hop, you play rap, you play reggae, you you do, you know, straight up pop, you do heavy metal. Um, how hard is it for you as a player to, to go from all those different genres in a show? Well, for me, a lot of what I do, a lot of the 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 uh, flavor of of whatever we're doing, it doesn't necessarily come from the drums. I mean, there are certain uh, you know parts, you know, like there's certain signature reggae parts, for example, you know. And, uh, but I mean, a lot of it is still the difference between pop and country and rock and and uh, you know a ballad and you know metal. You know, those are all mostly two and four. So I'm not the one generating the feel as much as the sound of the guitar or the uh, rhythms that uh, the, the keyboard or the guitar player are doing or horn lines or things that add a lot of the particular genre, you know, like, like funk and, and soul. You know, that doesn't always come from just the drums. I mean, most of it comes from other instruments. You know, the, the bass being funky around a straight drum part, for example, around a two and four drum part. So for me, and, and I appreciate the compliment, but, you know, I'm not really doing that many different styles. For me, a lot of it is very, very, very straight ahead stuff. And the people around me are the ones making the music. Or, you know, in, in the case of some of the things we do where, where there's a percussion loop, you know, the, the funk comes from that, not, not really from me. 
you know, again, with reggae, I mean, I have to play, you know, it's not a straight two and four thing necessarily, but, you know, for most of what I do, I'm really not, I'm not doing that much different stuff. I mean, it's pretty straight ahead stuff for me. You know, different tempos, of course, you know, maybe different kick drum kind of things, and maybe some different hi-hat sort of things, but that's, it's pretty straight, you know, for, for the kind of stuff we're doing, which, again, you know, despite all the genres, it's all pop music. I mean, it's all popular hip-hop. It's popular rap. It's popular uh, metal-sounding stuff, whether it's Rage Against the Machine or whoever it is. You know, it's groups that it's mainstream, let's call it. And most mainstream music is going to have a two and four backbeat. So it's actually not that difficult for me, you know, to get into all the different things. Uh, you know, I've, I've been put to the test a few times when we did Grapefruit Diet, which is a parody of Cherry Pop and Daddy's Suit Suit Riot. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I grew up listening to Gene Krupa and stuff like that, so you know, I was sort of, I was well aware of kind of the the big band and swing, you know, kind of stuff, the sing 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 rhythms and stuff, which is what a lot of that is. But that was still, I'd been playing rock and pop for so long, I'd been playing straight ahead for so long. That was a little bit of a challenge for me to get into that vibe, you know, to, to get back into sort of a big band. Uh, vibe on that thing and it's a little bit tough you know sometimes the click can be a little restrictive you know that's that's the big band stuff the orchestras are there's a little bit of flow there's a little bit of pushing and pulling and and uh you know doing that kind of jump stuff against a click was also very challenging you know i mean we did okay on it we used to play that live too but uh it's you know that that was a challenge for me that that one i think was was uh, one of the harder songs I'd done. Now, a lot of the songs, you know, we talk about rap and hip-hop, a lot of that stuff is programmed. Uh, and when we do a parody of a song that's been programmed, we also do the programs. So I, I had to learn, um, you know, not just putting sounds in a sampler, but I had to learn to create MIDI programs and create tracks. And uh, and eventually, you know, in doing the sound, you know, it, it became a sound design uh, thing, which drummers don't do a lot of that. You know, those are producers do that, keyboard players do that. Well, I do all of the drum sounds and programming that are on all of our records, you know, that require that. On the last album we had out, every parody was programmed, and every other song was played live. I was kind of, I think maybe that's the first album where that's been the case, where uh, every every mainstream song we did was originally a programmed song. Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, uh, that's a sign of the times of where we're at. But, you know, I'm going to say this. I think you're far too modest, Bermuda. Um, You are one of the most versatile drummers out there that's been doing it for this long because you do play so many different genres. And and while I agree with you, most of it's going to be two and four backbeat stuff. You make it look so easy. And, uh, you know, I've just always been fascinated by it and, and envious of your gig because, you know, and I think you've even said this before, you, you get to be, you know, 20 different drummers every night, which has got to be a really cool gig. It, it is. I mean, I'm not, you know, it, it, I mean, I know I'm playing very straight ahead, but I'm aware that I'm, I'm aware of the genre I'm playing. I'm aware of, in some cases, which drummer I'm imitating. Uh, you know, most of the originals, and particularly on this tour we did this spring, uh, most of our originals are based on the styles of other groups. I mean, they're, they're, some of them are very, very close to, uh, you know, groups of Foo Fighters, B-52s, you know, stuff like that, uh, the, the Pixies. Um, uh, uh, gee, I, it, is, it escapes. It escapes me. Uh, ben Folds. Uh, there's... There's some very recognizable, very kind of signature things I have to do, signature sounds I have to get. And when I'm playing these things, I mean, I, I definitely I feel like I'm in those bands. So it is like playing in a bunch of different bands, uh, you know, each night. Even if I'm playing the same part on every song, you know, every song becomes unique. And, uh, and, and it's fun. It's fun for me as well. I mean, it's, uh, and if it wasn't fun, you know, I, I might not do it. I mean, you know, the, the pay is, is fine, but... You know, it, I really, I drum for fun. And, and if something's not fun, I just, I won't do it. And you'd have to pay me an awful lot of money to get me to do it. <laughs> and, and I would still complain about it, you know, but all, all the way to the bank, as they say. Of course, of course. Well, you know, and and you can share as much or as little as you want on this. But one of the things that, that fascinated me about you is, you know, when you weren't touring with Al for a lot of those years, um, you had a corporate day job that you worked well i you know i had to eat 
you know, I had to had to pay rent. Uh, I just I, I uh, it's interesting because I, I had a, a regular day job. I mean, a full on career concurrent with the rise of Al. I mean, and well into our careers. I mean, I, I was working a day job until 1996. Now, fortunately, uh, and and I can't say that every company would do this. In fact, most companies won't, and particularly today, they won't. Um, I was able to come and go from that job many, many times, like six, seven, eight times, to go on the road, and then I would come back in. And uh, again, most most companies, you know, even if it's a company, say that's uh, like you work for a big music chain, and and they, you know, they really like to be nice to the employees that are musicians, and they'll let them go do stuff. I don't think they'd let them leave for three months at a time over and over and over and over again. And I was lucky. It was actually the company I worked for was Westwood One, and it was a radio syndication company. And, and the way I got in there, actually Al got me in there. Uh, that was his day job for a very short time. Uh, he got me in there. We did our first tour in May of 1983, just a little three-week thing. And uh, he left, but I took a, I basically took a little vacation, and I came right back. And I stayed there through 1996. And uh, every time I needed to go on the road, I gave them plenty of notice. I was reachable. I had a pager, and and uh, you know I would check in and and um, you know kind of keep tabs on things. I had people that looked after what I did. I was office manager. I was uh, the uh, purchasing manager. I was the facilities manager as well. And uh, so I always made sure everything was taken care of, and and I would come back and just resume my duties there, <clears throat> which meant one that was a regular paycheck. You know, at a time when I, you know, I wasn't making a ton of money with Al, and and uh, you know, so it was important to have full-time income. But I was able to do both. And you know, while I was sitting at my desk in my cubicle, in front of my old computer, uh, you know, I wasn't I wasn't thinking about you know making calls, trying to figure out how to go out and get back out on the road with somebody. You know, I just I was very dedicated to that, and and the company appreciated that, and. Uh, so that's, I mean, I'm actually very proud of that. And when drummers say, well, I, I'm not going to get a day job because it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill my spirit, it's going to kill my passion, I won't have time to go pursue work, it's like, no, of course you will. I mean, not only, yes, I had the Al thing, but I, I worked in other groups too. I was quite busy. I was never busier in my life than, than uh, you know, when I was musically, than when I was working a day job. Because the time I wasn't working was, was really precious it was very special it made playing with groups and rehearsals and things like that made that very special you know it was it was uh and honestly if i wasn't working it's not like i would be sitting around eight hours a day rehearsing with bands or going out and trying to get work it doesn't doesn't quite work that way so anybody that says you know well i I, i'm not going to do that because it's you know i'm I'm an artist i don't have to work you know just go go get a job you know, most of the guys you're going to play with are going to have their nights and weekends free anyway because they're working. You know, go get a job, get some income, pay for your sticks and heads and strings and cables or whatever stuff you need. Pay your rent, keep your lights on, put gas in your car, and and uh, you know, be a real person so you can afford to be a musician. Yeah. You know, until until that turns around. For me, it turned around. It actually probably turned around in the early '90s, and I just sort of hung in there at Westwood One, just I guess because I could, and it hadn't occurred to me to leave. And uh, in 96, I had an extended tour, and by the end of that tour, uh, decided to not return, and, uh, which, which was a good decision, and uh, not one that I regret, and uh, one, in fact, that's uh, bought me a lot of free time in the last 22 years, uh, you know, to just be a full-time musician and not have to, you know, be in, in an office five days a week if I didn't want to. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, and I, again, I didn't mind that, but I definitely appreciate not doing that. Yeah. And, and I did that. I did that for long enough. I did that for 14 years there, and and uh, that's fine. You know, again, no regrets. And uh, you know, I, I waited until I was able to make a comfortable transition. Yeah, well, point well taken that it that it makes the music part of it special. You know, I get that. Um, Bermuda. One of the traditions that we have here on the Drum Shuffle is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice. And you know, obviously, you've been playing with the same artist for thirty-eight years. Uh, I know that you've learned some things uh, in that time. So, give us a good piece of advice for other drummers and other musicians to take out there in our day-to-day lives. Well, there's a few things I think. Uh, you know, one, you know, as as a person, you know, certainly, but as a musician, to keep growing and and uh, 
you know, keep learning. You know, and, and both as a drummer and as a musician, which are kind of two different things. You know, it, I think we're all, hopefully, we're all musicians first, and then the instrument we play is drums. You know, if someone asks what I do, I tell them I'm a musician, and and then you know, and then I have to admit I play drums, but I, I rarely <laughs> just say I'm a drummer because again, it's 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 kind of two different things. There's two different perspectives on each, uh, on what you do with each. Like just playing drums doesn't make you a musician. You know, you can you can be an amazing drummer and not be a very good musician. Yeah. So it's, it's important to learn and grow as both. And we never stop learning or growing. I mean, uh, Vinny, uh, you know, is still learning. You know, we're all, hopefully, you know, we're all growing. And I think it's good to, to learn as much as you can, but you also have to realize you're probably not going to get to play more than 5%, and there's that figure again. You're probably not going to get to... To, in real life, play more than five percent of the things you know, and that's okay. You know, it's going to be a lot of two and four, and and that's just that's where drums fit in most music. You know, that's it. You know, I I would say also to not set limits on a career. I mean, I've run into a lot of young players that uh, you know, prospective players that that say, you know, if I'm not a professional drummer by the time I'm 25 or 30, I'm, I'm giving up. I'll just go get a day job. That's like, no, don't don't ever give it up. If one, if you love doing it, just do it. And, and do it because you love it, not because you need to turn it into a career. I mean, if it happens, that's great. But don't, you know, if, if you cut yourself off at age 25 or 30, you're guaranteeing that nothing's ever going to happen. I mean, a lot of things don't happen until you're 40 or maybe 50. You know, there's really no age limit on, on uh, achieving some success in the business. Uh, you know, it, it, can really, it can happen at any time. Yeah, there's a lot of young players out there. There's a lot more players that didn't really get noticed until they were in their 30s or 40s. You know, or 50s. Uh, you know, so I would say don't. You know, it's it's good to set goals, but don't really set limits because uh, you could just be hurting yourself. Uh, and and I think it's also important to keep a, a good attitude, just in general. Be you know, in in the music business, nice people finish first. You know, so I would say be a nice person. Well, that's all really good advice. And, you know, I'm going to share just a, a real quick uh, personal story as it pertains to you. Uh, our paths crossed uh, a couple years back um, just by chance, really. And uh, it just so happens that a good friend of mine had just built and donated a snare drum to uh, for charity uh, for the Louisville Leopards. Uh, and if my listeners don't know who that is, it's a, a group of young kids they come in, they learn songs on, you know, percussion instruments. But uh, my friend Kevin Smee up at Bowie Custom Drum had had built a snare drum and and uh, for charity. And I asked Bermuda if, if he wanted to participate in that in any way. And immediately, without question, here is a signed drum head from Al and the rest of the band. You know, stick it on that snare drum. See if we can bring a little bit more money at auction. So nice guys do finish first. And you are certainly one of those Bermuda. We uh, we appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, Jamie. I appreciate that. Well, I knew you wouldn't tell it. So so I had to. But, <laughs> you know, you, you're always willing to uh, help a, fo- uh, a fellow drum brother out. Um, you know, you've you've demonstrated that countless times and certainly by being on our show today. So I want to thank you so much for coming on. It goes without saying you're welcome here anytime uh, that uh, that you or Al has anything going on that you'd like to come on and talk about. The door is always open. Bermuda, thank you so much. Thank you, Jamie. All right. We'll talk to you real soon. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for episode 30 of the Drum Shuffle. Thank you so much for tuning in. We certainly can't do anything here without every single one of you guys. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in today. It certainly helps us. We also love hearing from each and every one of you throughout the week. Our email address is the Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is the Drum Shuffle.com. And you can find Find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. Again, many thanks to Bermuda for joining us today. Uh, we've certainly learned a lot from him. We've got some great guests coming up for you over the next few weeks, so you are not going to want to miss a single episode that we have coming up. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.